0: Today's Housing Wire Daily interview features a crossover episode from the Season 6 premiere of Housing Wire's Housing News Podcast. In this episode, Housing Wire Editor-in-Chief Sarah Wheeler interviews AEI Housing Center Director Ed Pinto. During the episode, the pair discuss several bills in Congress that target first-time home buyers and alternatives to down payment assistance that might do a better job helping those buyers. But, before we listen, here's a brief word from our sponsor. As a top 10 subservicer with a 98% customer satisfaction rate, TMS does business a different way, and it does it well. They deliver next-level service with next-level technology innovations, like Simi, their servicing portal that can help make a lender's job a breeze. So when you're ready to have the service put back into your subservicing, go to subservicing.themoneysource.com. Welcome, everyone. This is Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at HousingWire, with the latest episode of our Housing News podcast. I'm so excited to introduce our guest today, Ed Pinto. Today, Ed is the resident fellow and director of the American Enterprise Institute Housing Center, but he's been a leader in our industry for decades. He was Executive Vice President, Chief Credit Officer at Fannie Mae, and he's also served as Senior Legal Counsel for MGIC. Ed, welcome to Housing News.
1: Thank you, Sarah. It's a pleasure to participate in this podcast.
0: We're we're excited. So, you know, the first question we always ask our guests, who are all distinguished, all of those executive level um, guests, we really want to ask, how did you get into housing? Because it's it's not usually a straight path.
1: In my case, it was a straight path. I actually started in college and I, I ran for student body treasurer at the University of Illinois and I was elected and I got to meet another uh, person that had been elected to the Graduate Student uh, Association. Bruce Morrison, who's also well-known in the housing industry, he's retired now, um, but he was chairman of the Federal Housing Finance Agency back in the Clinton years. Uh, And so I I met Bruce as a fellow student, and he had been working on some landlord-tenant issues uh, with the Graduate Student Association, and I got introduced to that and uh, got interested in it. And then I started law school in 1971, and uh, got involved with student legal services at uh, uh, Indiana University and got involved in a landlord-tenant law that I drafted uh, for the city of Bloomington. and was passed by the Bloomington City Council in uh, 1972 or 73. And so my first job then when I started looking for a job after graduating uh, was with the Michigan State Housing Development Authority, uh, which uh, dealt with affordable housing, single family and multifamily. And I was an attorney there, and I became general counsel after a couple of years. And then the rest is history, as they say. I just went on from there. But I've been involved in housing uh, for not only my entire career, but it started uh, five years before I even graduated from law school.
0: That's amazing. And and just a, you know, a variety of experiences in, in different parts of it. So that's pretty interesting.
1: Yes, it's been a tremendous variety. I, I started with Michigan State Housing Development Authority. I was there for eight years. I then went to MGIC for a couple of years. Then I was at Fannie Mae, both uh, head of uh, marketing and product management for a couple of years. Then I was executive vice president and chief credit officer for a few years. Uh, and then I left and set up my own consultancy. Uh, I worked with a lot of large uh, financial institution banks uh, uh, like um, uh, Mellon, excuse me, uh, Mellon Bank was later, but uh, Dime Savings Bank and uh GE Mortgage Capital, which uh, owned uh, Gemico and uh, which is now Genworth. And I also later uh, got uh, connected with Mellon Bank and developed the first automated valuation model that was used in actual production of loans with uh, Mellon Bank back in about 1993. It was called Fast Value that I developed and they used it straight up as a replacement for a uh, appraisal in home equity loans. Another name, Jackie Doty, uh, who was at at Freddie Mac and at CoreLogic, uh, she was at Mellon at the time that uh, we started using the uh, uh, fast value. So uh, paths with many people have crossed and I've kept in contact with, with many people over the years. After this consulting career for about 20 years, I then started doing research at American Enterprise Institute about 10 or 12 years ago, and decided that after viewing what had happened with the financial crisis, given all the experience I had uh, going back decades, and I I knew credit and I knew data, that what we really needed to do was track what was going on much better. And so uh, a colleague, Steve Ulner, and I decided to create the the housing center and create the data sets that we're now well known for, um, which basically take lots of data that's never been put together before in one place and assemble that data. And our motto is uh, we turn data into knowledge, knowledge into information, and information into action. And so what we'll be talking about today in terms of some of the uh, product innovation that we'll be talking about is really how to get from data to action.
0: Love that. Well, thank you for for giving us that overview. There's so much there, and and we could spend a whole a whole podcast just on different parts of that. But you know, one of the things that's very um, of the moment, very timely right now in the news is um you know we have several bills proposed in Congress that address first-time homebuyers. Uh, one of the bills targets first-generation homebuyers with a grant given at closing, you know, for down payment assistance. And so I would love for you to catch us up on that bill and, and whether you think it could be effective at what it's trying to do.
1: So uh, Certainly, we have a a big problem in this country. It's getting worse literally by the day. And uh, I blame, there's lots of blame to go around. Um, The latest entity that I would put the heavy blame on would be the Fed. Uh, The Fed uh, is focusing on the wrong inflation numbers. They're focusing on inflation numbers that since 2012, the PCE, which is their preferred measure, has gone up 16% cumulatively. House prices at the low end. Since 2012, have gone up 100%. Incomes have gone up 20%, whatever you know. Very small portion of that, and so you can't possibly keep up if that's what's going on. And so, first-time homebuyers uh, at, the, at the lower income get squeezed out of the market as these house prices go up faster and faster. The answer is not credit easing. That's been the answer we've been using. Literally, and I've documented this in my research, two things that I am known for are A, data, and I've already talked about that, but the other is going back in history. How did this happen? What was it like before some changes were made? And I've actually gone back and found that the 30-year mortgage was not commonplace in existing housing finance in the United States until after 1954. Um, It was used in FHA to some extent uh, for new construction, but for existing homes, Congress didn't even authorize its use by FHA until 1954. And it wasn't used at all by the private sector until quite a bit later. And um, and so uh, other changes were taking place over the decades. They all had the same theme. We're going to use additional leverage to make housing affordable. Well, the problem is, if you have a shortage of housing, and we've known this for decades, I have I've found research from 1951 that says if you try to do credit easing during a period of sell, a seller's market, then the credit easing will get capitalized into higher prices. It will not make the housing more affordable. And ironically, it'll actually reduce housing standards because lower income people will be able to buy less house. Because when I said house prices were up 100%, that's on a constant quality basis. So the house that cost $100,000 in 2012 cost $200,000 in 2021. It's the same house. So it's a constant quality house. So clearly, if you can't afford that, what was a $100,000 house, you can only afford $150,000 house today, you have to settle for lower quality. And this is exactly what this research from 1951 uh, stated. And um, and so we can see this today when the Fed lowered interest rates through uh, during the pandemic last March, a year ago, and all of a sudden um, interest rates dropped by 150 basis points, whatever, 100 basis points. But house prices, which already were increasing quite rapidly, maybe 8 or 9% uh, year over year, started increasing 10%, 12 15%. Last July, we said that we're seeing data in our early warning data that says by the end of the year, we're going to have double digit, low double digit uh, inflation in, in house prices. And lo and behold, that's exactly what happened. But we said that last July. And we believe that by May, we're going to be seeing 15 to 16 percent year over year price increases on an average nationwide. And, and we don't see that ending anytime soon uh, at these interest rates that the Fed has is, is engineered. So that's making the problem worse. So any solution that would increase demand would literally, that assistance, would get capitalized in even higher prices. It's hard to believe the prices can go up even faster, but we believe they can. It's just a supply and demand issue. And right now, we have the lowest supply that we've had, we believe, in our history. Now, we can't go back more than 30 years with data, we can't go back more than 50 or 60 years with anecdotal information. But based on my research, I believe the supply today, which is down in the one to two month range nationwide, is the lowest it's ever been in in history, uh, housing finance history in the United States. And when you get um, demand uh, out of whack so much, you get these rapid increases in house prices, very rapid increases in house prices. So if you go back to the idea that you're gonna provide down payment assistance, even if it's limited to first-generation home buyers, uh, which is a much smaller group than first-time home buyers, um, it's still a, a bunch of people, a fair number of households. And if they take advantage of it and wouldn't have tried to get a home otherwise, you've brought more people, more demand to the table. And that can do nothing but drive prices even higher. So, we've been saying that any attempt to provide down payment assistance, either to first time buyers or to first generation buyers to pay for a down payment, um, would end up being counterproductive. And there's been a fair amount of pushback by uh, industry leaders that that might happen, might be the result. And so, we've taken that position and we've tried to figure out an alternative that could be provided to first generation home buyers. That would not suffer from the defect of driving prices higher.
0: Yeah, really interesting. There's definitely been a lot of um, talk about the fact that why would we be stoking demand when there's so little supply? But at the same time, you think if you're one of those first generation um, home buyers, and and this is the way most people build wealth in the country, you know, is is it fair to then just not have that? So it's it's interesting debate going on. I'm I'm not even sure if if it's going to go through. But yeah, go ahead and and say something. I think you were going to answer that.
1: So so that's why we've come up with an alternative. And this is an alternative that actually developed uh, back about five or six years ago. Uh, The first uh, rendition of it was the Wealth Building Home Loan, uh, which basically said, instead of a 30-year loan, let's go with a 20-year loan. And the reason is that a 30-year loan, which is viewed as being a safe instrument It's it's safe because it's a fixed-rate instrument, but it's not safe because it amortizes incredibly slowly. And if you combine it, you risk layer with other uh, risk characteristics like very low down payments, high debt ratios, and low uh, credit scores. Those risks pile up. And if they're done on a 30-year loan, they get to be quite substantial. And most people don't realize this, but uh, during the financial crisis, there were... Huge numbers of just traditional thirty-year loans made with lots of risk layering that had extraordinarily high default levels. Were they as high as some of the other crazy loans that were being done? No. But the FHA, which didn't do any of the crazy loans, it didn't do any negam, it didn't do any low doc, no doc, it didn't do any ARMs, it didn't do any investor loans. Yet it had incredibly high default rates. As did Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. If you just look at the loans that they did that were um, these 30-year fixed rate with these characteristics that we consider safe, Um, the difference is if you made the exact same loan, the exact same credit characteristics in terms of DTI, FICO score, down payment, on a 20-year basis, the default level drops in half. You make one change and it drops in half. Ironically, you could actually do away with the down payment. And it still drops roughly in half because the difference between a 97 LTV and 100 LTV is not very much, given the 50% drop. It doesn't change the 50% drop very much. And the reason is, is that it amortizes so quickly. Uh, On a 20-year term, you're getting so much more amortization in the early years, particularly uh, given these very low interest rates. You get it no matter what, but it, it accelerates with these low interest rates. And uh, FHA back in the 1930s, when it was established, put out a pamphlet. And they said um, they had no concept of a 30-year loan at that point. Um, They said, if you were to uh, take out a 10 or 15 or 20-year loan, which was the norm under FHA in the 30s and 40s, up through the 50s, as I mentioned, uh, if you take out a loan like that, it's like buying a house and paying yourself rent. And the reason is that a substantial chunk of the monthly payment, and let me look at an example here. Um, the, uh, if we were to uh, look at um, a loan that um, at uh, today at three and a quarter percent interest uh, on a $200,000 property, uh, and the uh, principal and interest, including a mortgage insurance premium, would be just under $1,000. If you did the exact same loan as 20 year, you bought down the rate, which we'll get to in a moment. You bought down the rate so that the monthly payment is still roughly about $1,000. That $1,000 in the case of the 30 year loan, 68% of it goes to interest or about $680, and about $320 goes to principal. Now, do the 20 year loan with the bought down rate. You now have going to interest, $740 going to principal. That is a huge difference between $320 a month, or about $3,800 a year, and $740, which is $10,000 a year. Uh, And that makes a huge difference in the amount of amortization. And it's that feature that actually builds wealth, which is why we call it the Wealth Building Home Loan. Where we get into the assistance part is if you're going to spend money on down payment assistance, that's going to have the effect of driving up house prices by increasing demand. You'd be better off using the same dollars or even potentially fewer dollars to buy down the interest rate by uh, this one and three quarters percent to get the the payments to be the same. Um, You get all of this wealth building, but you're not increasing demand. Well, why aren't you increasing demand? Because you're, in effect, soaking up that subsidy to speed up the amortization. It's going from the tenant's monthly payment into their equity position or wealth in the house. It's not being used. They can't use it to bid up the price of the house. And it's that simple difference that makes, we think makes what we call lift home um, and for first generation uh, home buyers. Uh, we think that makes lift home a much better alternative Than a down payment assistance or other types of assistance that would increase demand. One last thing, how do we know, I already gave one example where the Fed lowered interest rates tremendously, we got a big boost in house prices. How do we know that when you do this, besides this research that was done 70 years ago, that that's what happens? Well, FHA lowered its premium back in 2014, I think it was, by 50 basis points. And at the time, we had a pretty strong seller's market, nothing as strong as this today. A seller's market is defined as less than six months inventory. Back in 2014, we might have had four months inventory, which is a decent seller's market. Now we're at one to two months. This is a rip-roaring seller's market like we've never seen before. Um, well, what happened when FHA lowered its premium? We knew, we predicted what was going to happen, but we actually did uh, what was what's called a natural experiment. You have FHA made a change. Fannie, Freddie, uh, uh, VA, and rural housing didn't change anything. Interest rates were the same for everyone. So the only difference was a 50 basis point drop in the cost of the credit enhancement for FHA. And we did a lot of research and did a lot of analysis. And what we found is that when the percentage of FHA borrowers in a census tract got to be a certain percentage, and it turned out to be about 20 percent. Uh, they basically become the marginal buyer setting the price. Think about it. If a house sells in your neighborhood, all of a sudden it was selling, your house was selling, you might've bought it for $100,000 and uh, other houses start selling. And then all of a sudden, a couple of years later, houses are selling for 120,000. And then another house sells for 125. Then all of a sudden your house is goes up by that $5,000 because all the houses in the neighborhood are marked to market to the last batch of sales. So the marginal buyer indeed is setting the price for everyone, and everyone calculates their wealth based on those last sales. And so if the FHA buyer, who's maybe 20 or 25% of the buyers in a neighborhood, um, has got this extra jingle in their pocket, this extra 50 basis points, which translated to about 7% more buying power, Um, If they have that extra jingle in their pocket, they can drive the prices up for everyone, not only for FHA buyers, but all the buyers in that neighborhood at that price point end up paying more. And uh, we said, this is crazy. FHA is doing the exact opposite of what it should be doing, yet it's taking all kinds of credit for having done a great thing. It also said it was going to create all kinds of additions to uh, demand. Well, what we found was that um, they stole uh, demand from other uh, government guarantors. The uh, uh, rural housing, which was doing, I think, about 4% of the market before FHA lowered its premium, they took 40% of uh, rural housing's business. So you have one government agency doing something that ends up poaching 40% of another government agency's business and FHA calls that progress. That's like um, the uh, Buick taking business from Cadillac, both owned by GM, and calling that a success. Well, I don't know that GM shareholders would view it that way. Well, I'm not sure the taxpayers and homeowners should view it that way either.
0: Really, thanks for that deep, deep dive. I love that. Um, when, when it comes to Lift Home then, so that's that's a low income first time homebuyer tax credit. So so where are you with that? Where where is
1: that? We've uh, retooled it to be the same uh, first generation lower income mm-hmm. first generation, uh, which by definition becomes a first time buyer, but uh, first generation home buyer. And uh, Senator Warner has been socializing this uh, uh, both uh, among other other colleagues in the Senate uh, on both sides of the aisle and among some of the housing groups in the housing uh, sphere. And uh, it's also been out for some comment, uh, technical comments from various departments uh, in uh, the federal government. And so that's all uh, moving forward. Um, And um, we expect that there may be some progress on this uh, in the next uh, weeks and months to come. Uh, There have been two hearings in the In the banking committee on other topics, but both cases, um, Senator Warner asked questions of the witnesses. I was one of the five witnesses um, uh, a month and a half ago, and Tobias Peter, a colleague at American Enterprise Institute Housing Center, was a witness about three weeks ago uh, with a couple of other witnesses. And uh, everyone was uniform that uh, this is a good idea and they supported uh, from both well, from the uh, complete spectrum um, of people that were in the witness uh, group. Uh, so we took a lot of uh, uh, comfort in that support uh, across a broad range of people. I know um, uh, you may be familiar with Professor Richard Green. Uh, he was interviewed uh, on a podcast a couple of weeks ago. Might have been released uh, this past week. And he happened to bring up um, that uh, he's heard about uh, lift home and he thinks it's a great idea uh notwithstanding that he laughed when he said it that i had suggested it uh but um uh he did think it was a great idea and i uh, actually have a podcast coming up uh on uh this topic uh in a couple of weeks and so uh we're getting some good traction uh we're getting some good support we've had some support from some of the uh housing association groups i don't want to say which ones they are But we have some uh, very enthusiastic support by some national groups, and we're we're hopeful that this uh, uh, will get bipartisan support and then can move uh, in the House and Senate.
0: Interesting. You know, when we reported on the Maxine Waters bill that's in there for first gen homebuyers, um, we were calling it the Biden, the by Bi- oh the Biden tax credit they talked about, and then the White House was like, "Yeah, no, that's not ours." <laughs> and so, now I don't think they wanted to be disassociated with it. They're just like, "That's really not the, the same thing." So then, when we count the first-time home biller, you know, the real first-time home buyer, not first-gen, the tax credit, we're like, "Okay, well, this must be the Biden's thing." And they're like, "Yeah, no, that, that that's not it either." So, <laughs> so you know, maybe yours is going to be the Biden tax credit. I don't, I don't know, but I we still know think it. It. That there's, you know, there's not one that's been included with the infrastructure bill. So that's we're wondering if, yeah. if that's the if that's what the Biden White House is waiting to kind of throw their, you know, if there's another one waiting in the wings, we don't know. But um, I just think that that's interesting. There's definitely an appetite for addressing the problems that first time homebuyers are having.
1: There, there is an appetite, but this really then gets to the bigger problem, which is uh, lack of supply. And the United States has a massive problem with lack of supply and that problem is only going to get worse over the next number of years not you know what we're experiencing today i believe in terms of these outsized house price increases can continue for quite some time and they will squeeze out the lower end of the market more and more let me give you uh, an example of why that happens how how high can house prices go and so there's a lot of discussion going on about Are we in a bubble? And I don't tend to use the term bubble. I tend to use the term boom. We are clearly in a house price boom. But again, I go back in history and say, what can we learn from the economists that wrote uh, about this in the past? And uh, this is actually a businessman that wrote in, in 1903. He wrote the first treatise on valuing urban properties. That may sound like, or city properties, as they were called. Well, why would that, why was that news? Well, the reason was that up until then, virtually everyone lived on a farm, even in the United States. In 1890, we were still basically an agrarian country. And so you didn't need to value city properties. And all city meant was non-farm. Everything that was not on a farm, a house, was called non-farm or city. And therefore, it included everything that wasn't a farm. And uh, he basically, he worked for a title company. He was a subsidiary that was a mortgage insurance company, believe it or not, in 1903. Oh, really? There were mortgage insurance companies in 1903? Yes. And he was the president of one. And as I said, it was the subsidiary of a uh, title insurance company, so he had lots of data. Because he had all the deed transactions that were done by paper back then. But he had them all, and they kept track of them, and they had the prices, and they had the the size of the lots, and they had all this information, the date and everything, and he was able to track all of that. And he basically came out with a series of of, of, of treatise, but in the front of the treatise is a a number of principles. And one of many of the principles are are worth taking to heart, but one that is particularly apropos today is house prices can go up or go down those are market prices. They can go up and they can go down. Whether they stay up or stay down is dependent on intrinsic value. And what is intrinsic value dependent on? The utility of the property. He wrote this in 1903. Let's take a, an example recently of this playing out in uh, warp, at warp speed. Amazon announces they're going to put the headquarters in Long Island City. The price of land and office buildings, and you name it, in that area around Long Island City, soars for four weeks. And then they change their mind because of political opposition. And the prices go right back to where they were. Well, that's taking what, in the case of the financial crisis, started in the late 90s, and ended in 2007 with the end of the boom, and then unfolded through 2011, that compressed all of that into four weeks. But now let's look at Arlington, Virginia. They got the other uh, uh, co-headquarters. And that's still going apace. And so Arlington and the town next to it, or city next to it, Alexandria, they've got all kinds of stuff going on, including uh, Virginia Technical University is building a new campus there. There's all kinds of infrastructure going in. There's all kinds of, you know, a- Amazon itself and all kinds of office buildings, there's housing, you name it, it's a boom town. And so that has now been incorporated in that, that new utility has been incorporated into the prices. And the, those prices will stay up as long as that utility is still there, but the utility disappeared in the case of Long Island City. So, what does that have to do with today? Well, I already mentioned that the boom that we had back that started in uh, 98 uh, and ended in 2007 um, didn't have a change in utility. Uh, not only did we have lots of really bad underwriting and very risky loans, uh, but we really had uh, what's known in the United States as drive into you qualify. And drive into you qualify means that, your DTIs are too high, how do you, you can't raise your income easily, but you can lower the price of the house. How do you lower the price of the house? You drive further out. And things further out tend to have lower prices. Why? Because of lower land costs. Um, and But you end up in some cases getting more house further out on a somewhat larger lot, but it is lower price because you have to drive much further. And that was really the safety valve for lower income individuals uh, to drive till they qualified. It's a well-known expression in uh, housing underwriting. So uh, the question today is, is this boom we're experiencing, is there a change in utility? Is it sustainable? And uh, I'm not one that's fond of saying this time is different. I've disparaged that term many times, particularly in in the housing finance arena. But I do believe this time may well be different. And the reason this time is different is because of the confluence of two events, the legacy of zoning restrictions, uh, 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 overly restrictive zoning and land use requirements combined with NIMBYism, which has been festering for decades in the United States, with the freedom provided by work from home that was first really unleashed. It was going on in the background. I've been working from home, by and large, in many cases, uh, more or less, since 1989. Uh, the technology has been there for a long time, but the ability to do it wasn't there in terms of the willingness of the employer. But the the pandemic basically made it a requirement. We entered into a great national experiment. Nobody with in the right mind would have said it would have sent everyone home in mass in March of last year. But that's what happened. And so we actually found out whether it could work and it worked amazingly well. And so uh, I'm not saying that the uh, people, you know, that a lot of people aren't going to return to the office, but a lot of people aren't going to return to the office and a lot of people aren't going to return to the office full time. Well, if you start putting those numbers together, one of the statistics that we uh, came up with and reported on just on our briefing uh, earlier this week is that if you look at the country and divide it up into metropolitan areas, roughly 25% of the metropolitan areas have very high house prices. You can guess where they are. They're Boston, New York, uh, Chicago, Seattle, uh, Portland, but the vast majority of them are in California. And then some other places near that border California all the way to Denver. Um, That's a quarter of the population of the country. The other three quarters of the population of the country live in uh, areas that are much, much lower priced. Ironically, when you compute the median uh, uh, home price to median uh, uh, income in the area, yes, the home prices we know are very high in those places, that 25%, but their incomes are higher also. So you're actually dividing a large number by a large number and you still get a very large number. So when you talk about a place like Phoenix, Versus a place like um, uh, San Jose, let's look at some very simple numbers. In March, a home, the median priced home in, in San Jose sold for $1.3 million. The median priced home, $1.3 million. What's the median income a year or two ago? That's the most recent data we have for the San Jose metropolitan area $130,000. It's probably the highest, maybe San Francisco might be a bit higher, of any metro area in the country. $130,000. So that gives you about a 10 to 1 ratio. Uh, let's go to Phoenix. Phoenix, the median priced house sold in March of this year, $350,000. About a quarter as much as in uh, uh, San Jose. But you get a bigger house in terms of gross living. You get a bigger lot. You get a newer house. And it has more amenities at a much lower price than the house you could have gotten in San Jose. And the person from San Jose is bringing potentially, if they're the median person in San Jose, they're bringing $130,000 income to Phoenix, which the median income in Phoenix is $68,000. So you could see where you can have house prices really going up for a long time as people bleed out of San Jose to Sacramento and they bleed into Phoenix and they leave Sacramento to go to Boise and they uh, leave Sacramento to go to Phoenix and LA to go to Phoenix. You can see how this game of sort of leapfrog happens. uh, And this can go on for quite some time. And then you say, well, how do you know it can go on for quite some time? We just have to look at California. San Jose has house prices that are 10 times median income. One would have thought that was impossible, but yet it is. Well, how does that happen? Well, it happens because the home ownership rate goes down. Where's the home ownership rate the lowest in the United States? San Francisco, San Jose, Seattle, Portland, New York. Those are the places that have the highest prices to income. Those are the places with the lowest. Home ownership rate. And so I can confidently say that A, I think this process will continue and B, the result of this process, if we don't deal with supply in a way that actually will work. And that's important because we've tried it at the federal level many times and it hasn't worked. If we don't do it in a way that will work, we will end up with a uh, home ownership rate that's going to be declining. And remember, our home ownership rate today is not much different than it was in the early 1960s. And the home ownership rate for Black households is not much different than it was in the 1960s. Um, and so we actually will be starting from a point that's not a great point to be at, given all the trillions and trillions and trillions of financing and all the subsidies we provided. We, we, as a country, we provide an immense amount of subsidies to housing, We have the tax deduction for the interest. We have tax deduction for property taxes. We have Fannie, Freddie, FHA, all those implicit guarantees and government guarantees, explicit guarantees, subsidies, cross subsidies. Uh, we have all of these things, second homes, Fannie, Freddie doing second homes, investor homes. We have all these things going on. And yet our home ownership rate is barely is not any different than most of the other developed countries in the world. And so we haven't gotten a whole lot for our money, but now we have a crisis facing us. This could really get bad because of this arbitrage effect that's going on from the high cost areas, the people bleeding out, they can now move and the companies can move too, but they can now move and get a more house in these other places. They're taking advantage of the arbitrage. That's the problem.
0: Absolutely, no. We, you know, we've been uh, talking about the, the surprising hot home markets. Uh, you know, San Jose, San Francisco. That's not surprising, but you know, those five places in Boise and Idaho that are showing up as on the top twenty five MSAs. Why, you know, It's because people right. from San Jose and San Francisco can work remotely from Idaho. It's the same, right. you know, and and we just see it all over. And we've been we've been covering it. It's crazy. It, it,
1: and again, like that FHA example I gave, where once you get to twenty percent. It doesn't take very many people moving from San Jose to move the market in a Boise, or a Coeur or even a metro as large as Phoenix. Uh, it, because Phoenix is getting people from up and down the West Coast flowing into Phoenix, plus retirees coming from different places. So Phoenix has people coming from lots of places. It really drives the market. Again, the marginal buyer sets the price. And the problem is when that person comes from California with having sold a house, but even if they were renting at $4,000 a month and they move to somewhere else, all of a sudden it looks like it's a fire sale of properties. I can't pass this up. This is a bargain. And the reason, and oh, do I need to bid it up $50,000 to get it? So what? That's rounding if you sold a house for a million free. In, uh, I- San, San Jose buying a six hundred fifty thousand versus a seven hundred thousand dollars house in Phoenix is literally rounding.
0: That, that's exactly what we're seeing. So interesting. Um, you know, for for my last question, I have a have an interesting thing. You know, um, our lead analyst Logan Motoshami.
1: I he, read him all the time. I love him.
0: Oh yeah, well, you know we do too. And one one of the things that he posits is that there's there's a um, there are two things at odds here, and and it's like the one is the desire of people in housing on every side to um, to have ha- your house become a wealth management tool. And there's the other desire to have affordable housing. But things that are an investment, they're only an investment if they go up. They're only a good investment if they go up. Yeah. So how do you balance the fact that, yes, you could totally make more supply. We we could fix that if we really wanted to, but it would bring down everybody else's house price. And so all the people who currently own are are, are not gonna be interested in that, so.
1: That's, that, that's not exactly the way I think it would.
0: Lo- love to get your take on that.
1: So uh, first of all, um, we've gone back and tried to assemble and it's difficult to do because uh, computers, there were computers, but but you didn't have personal computers and Excel spreadsheets and stuff. So there's a lot of paper that exists from the first half, even the first 70 years of the 20th century that never got put into electronic documents, um, particularly searchable documents. Um, And so we've made um, a, as a goal, to go back and find those archival documents that shed light on what actually was going on in the 50s, 60s, 70s, um, in the 20th century. And what we have found is that um, new construction was going great guns in uh, after World War II, starting in uh, the late 40s, new construction really got going and population was growing uh, but new construction and population were in sync with each other as population grew or as households grew, new construction units, housing units grew along with it. And we actually had that um, desirable point where real house prices from about 1950 to 1973 or 74 were going up, were flat, or going down slightly. And since incomes were actually going up a bit uh, faster than inflation, We actually had house prices relative to incomes going down, you know, a a reasonable amount, and so we had a 25-year period, a golden period, of uh, house price uh, supply and demand being in sync, and prices stayed in sync. We know that I mentioned those 25% of the country that live in metros that have very high prices, and we know the 75% that are at much lower uh, prices to income ratios. We know that. Uh, When you focus on the metros that have a lot of job growth, let's not, you know, talk about Pittsburgh or uh, Cleveland, you know, that hasn't had a lot of job growth, Bridgeport. Let's talk about how to compare a place like Raleigh or Austin to a place like uh, Reno or Las Vegas or San Jose that have had a lot of job growth or Seattle. And what we find distinguishing, uh, distinguishes them uh, from each other, those groups, is the amount of new construction as a percent of home sales. You could also do it as a percent of households and additions, but we look at it as a percent of of home sales. And uniformly, um, when uh, the percent of new construction as a percent of home sales is higher, like 30%, 25%, uh, you end up with not price declines, as was suggested, but tamped down price inflation or appreciation. You don't get negative appreciation. Uh, You end up, so there's a difference between deflation and disinflation. You were referencing deflation. You get disinflation. Disinflation is the slowing of the rate of inflation or the slowing of the rate of appreciation. That is not deflation. And so what we get is rampant inflation in places like Reno and Las Vegas and Seattle, and we get much slower house price appreciation, but still enough. I mean, 4% is still a pretty good number in places like Raleigh and Austin. Right now, because, of, again, of these effects that I mentioned earlier in the, and the arbitrage effect and the work from home, it's going to be more difficult for places like Raleigh and Charlotte and uh, Austin to keep up. I think- um, What we found is that Austin today is building new housing at an immense rate, and it's still not enough to keep the prices from soaring. Uh, I think the latest numbers we show is something like 40% of all the home sales in Austin are new. I mean, that's an incredible percentage. That's off the charts from what it was a couple of years ago. Uh, Yet, house prices are still going up by gangbusters. Uh, there's so much demand, pent up demand from this move moving into Austin. But eventually you do catch up. And again, that, again, that's what we learn from land economists from the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. In fact, uh, I, I mentioned this on our briefing call on Monday. Uh, there's a, um, uh, a fed chairman named Mariner Eccles who was fed chairman from the thirties to the uh, early 1950s. Uh, He was appointed by Franklin Roosevelt, and he was there for a very long time. And there was rampant house price inflation in 1947. House prices had gone up 25% in two years. 25% in two years. That sounds very familiar. Ours has gone up roughly, by the time we get to the end of this year, it will have gone up 25% in two years. And let me just find this quote as it's worth noting because I basically, what I said is you don't have to change a word in this quote and it applies today. What Mariner Eccles said in 1947 was if the easy credit situation and easy credit includes low interest rates, uh, if the easy credit situation were producing a substantial additional volume of housing at supportable values in the long run It would be justified. But because of the limitations of labor and materials it produces, instead, a dangerously inflated market which cannot be sustained for both new and old houses. I believe that by curtailment of credit for housing in closer relationship to the supply of labor materials, the price trend would be reversed and the market for housing assured over the long period of years. Good low cost housing cannot be built with high cost materials and high cost labor. Neither the government nor private industry can produce this miracle. That's a direct quote, and he testified, that was testimony before Congress, on the issue of house price inflation. I consider that to be a very cogent description and analysis and solution of what was going on. I read what our current chairman, Jerome Powell, said last week, and I'm left with literally my jaw dropping. I don't believe he understands housing economics at all. And therefore, doesn't. Under- he says, oh, this inflation is fleeting. Well, land economists know that once house prices go up, they form the base for the next increase. So if we're right that th- there isn't going to be a, a big collapse here, even if in, inflate, house price inflation goes back to four percent. Five hasn't been at four percent for quite a while. Even if we go to four percent, it's on a base that's up by twenty-five percent by the you know the end of this year. It'll be up by twenty-five percent. Well, that is, and then property taxes have to go up. Those haven't even hit yet. Jerome Powell has basically given a gift of hundreds of billions of dollars, probably in property taxes, to cities around the country just through inflated values. Those. Those property taxes get adjusted year, a year, two or three from now. And all of a sudden, people that bought houses you know, last year, uh, two years ago, are going to find that their monthly payments go up quite a bit. Now, yeah, they have the comfort of knowing their house also went up. But if their incomes didn't go up very much, they then really run into a problem. And that's, these are things that I don't think our leaders at the Fed understand at all.
0: Wow. Well, thank you so much. Appreciate that, especially the the historical perspective that you are bringing um, on these issues. And then uh, interesting to hear what you what you guys are doing with your tax credit. Please keep us up to date on that and let I us will. know. And and also, uh, I'm sure we'll have you back this summer because things are changing rapidly and we'd love to, to have you back to talk some more about this.
1: Perfect. Thank you, Sarah. Always a pleasure.
0: Thank you so much, Ed.